Let's have our Bibles open and look at the passage that we're going to study together. It's Matthew chapter 7 and from verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. People pick grapes from thistles, from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Amen. In this last section, the Lord Jesus is driving home the importance of acting on his teaching. Uh, He is urging a a practical uh, response to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not interested uh, in people giving nice, polite comments in regard to what he has said. Uh, He's not uh, interested in uh, the, the statements in the Sermon on the Mount adorning tea towels or mugs or people commenting positively on the, the moral teaching. He is urging people to go through that narrow gate and along that narrow road and to overlook the fact that the majority may be travelling in a very different and easier uh, way. Now, it is not just a a divide that runs through the, the secular world because Jesus now turns his attention to the religious world. And, uh, is warning us that, again, it may be in some contexts that it is a minority uh, who are professing the true faith, who are truly Christ's. And there is a need for discernment, a need to identify people who are, are pulling away the gullible, and a need for being discerning of one's own spiritual state. And certainly, as in all things, it is wrong to conclude that the majority are right simply by fact of being the majority. This is what uh, the great evangelical Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, wrote in the 19th century. We may tremble and be afraid if our religion is out of the multitude, if we can say no more than this, that we go where others go and worship where others worship, and hope we shall do as well as others at last, we are literally pronouncing our own condemnation. What is this but being in the broad way? What is this but being in the road whose end is destruction? Our religion at present is not saving religion. We have no reason to be discouraged and cast down if the religion we profess is not popular and few agree with us. We must remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. The gate is narrow. Now, 
Jesse Ryle was not saying in his day, small is beautiful, in religious terms, and uh, I don't go along personally with the view uh, that some uh, hyper-conservative circles hold that being small and struggling is a sign of faithfulness. Uh, it may be, but it also may be a sign of an ingrown church that has lost its evangelistic fervor. But at the same time, Jesus' words would warn us that a preacher could be uh, on the cover of Time magazine as man of the year and yet, yet be a scoundrel and a false prophet. And a church can be packed out because it's sold out as far as the truth of the gospel is concerned. There's a religious track, in other words, on this broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus' warning, uh, both in terms of the false teacher and in terms of ourselves, is a warning against being superficial. A warning against making superficial assessments, both of teachers and of ourselves. And so... We have two points only this morning. We have uh, a warning to be discerning in regard to false teachers. Christians must be on their guard against false teachers. And secondly, Christians must be on their guard against self-deception. Christians must be on their guard against false teachers. <coughs> don't know if any of you recognise the guy coming out of the jet. Uh, this is Creflo Dollar, and I'm not joking, this is his name, uh, Creflo Dollar, the Reverend Dollar. And three years ago, uh, Destiny Church Glasgow invited the Reverend Dollar over to speak to a conference uh, to, whom, to which many uh, across the, the land were invited. Now, Dollar, and it's hard to say it without uh, <laughs> uh, smiling, but he is infamous for prosperity gospel preaching. A prosperity gospel is the, the false doctrine that uh, God wants his people to be materially wealthy. And that if you give uh, to a particular uh, church or organization, that that giving is seed money and God will prosper you financially so that uh, you are much, much better off. And in global terms, it's a falsehood which preys disproportionately on the poor of the world. It has a big stranglehold, for example, in poor parts of Africa. Now, this is obnoxious and unbiblical teaching. And, for example, just a scan of some of the, the titles of the books that Creflo Dollar has written gives you a flavour for where he's coming from. Eight steps to create the life you want. Winning in troubled times. The Holy Spirit, your financial advisor. Total life prosperity. Now, these do sound like titles that I have made up in order to lampoon uh, the Reverend Creflo Dollar, but I kid you not, they are genuine titles and they reflect uh, his central uh, teaching uh, ideas. He scored massively. He has two Rolls-Royce cars, he has a private jet, he has three multi-million dollar 
residences and his organisation uh, World Changers has refused scrutiny by uh, the tax uh, authorities in the States. When he was invited to come over to Scotland, uh, David Robertson, uh, formerly of St Peter's Dundee, spoke out against his coming and called for him to be uninvited. And one would have thought that that was fairly, a fairly obvious uh, <laughs> thing to go along with, but David encountered great kickback from people who thought that Dollar was a winner, thought it would be churlish to criticise a church like Destiny, who must be a good church because they're growing and filling former cinema venues. And therein lies the problem. Because in some respects, uh, pointing out the fact that here is a man who is a false teacher is picking the low-hanging fruit. It ought to be very obvious. It ought to be an easy thing to discern that this is not good stuff. This is not the kind of message that Jesus who was a friend of the poor uh, and who uh, never exploited those who were financially uh, less well off for his own material gain, would have distanced himself from. And yet, we are so undiscerning of the obvious. And therefore, Jesus' warnings to us to look out for false teachers uh, must trouble us uh, and must encourage us to be far more alert and discerning to those who masquerade under the uh, pretext of being teachers of the word. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious or ravenous wolves. Jesus uh, speaks first about the character of the false prophet, and then he tells us how they're identified and then tells us of their ultimate destination. Now, prophet can mean someone uh, who claims to speak inspired words and uh, biblically it would be claiming direct revelation from God, uh, not necessarily, but sometimes predictive uh, words from God. Or, more generically, it can be used as someone uh, who is a Bible teacher, someone who is claiming to interpret the Bible. And Jesus is saying that not all people who come quoting God's words are to be trusted. They are to be tested before they are trusted because there is such a thing as a false teacher. And they come well disguised. They are in sheep's clothing. Now that's, that's the point, isn't it? It would be all too easy if uh, the false teacher had false teacher you know, engraved on his forehead. No problem. Or if he was like the, the, the wolf in the, the, the picture you know, with the, <laughs> the, the flap uh, quite clearly exposing his wolfishness. But the false teacher is not typically uh, easily identifiable by standing out in that way. They look like one of the sheep, Jesus says. The Creflo Dollar type stepping out of the Learjet is the exception in some senses. Uh, usually the false teacher is more mainstream. They're smooth talkers. They wear chinos and blue blazers. They have nice stories about their kids and about their holidays. Or maybe they have wide clerical collars or bishop's mitres. They have big smiles. They tell charming stories. And because they look so harmless, they are all the more 
dangerous. They are wolves, after all. Jesus says they are ferocious, or the other alternative rendering of the word is, is ravenous. <coughs> ravenous. Now, uh, if we take that rendering, it's a telling description because it uh, is a common feature of the character of the false teacher. There's something empty inside them. They're hungry for what they don't have. They're ravenous wolves. What are they hungry for? They're hungry for affirmation. Uh, They're hungry for recognition. They're hungry for power. They're hungry for a following. They love having their books mentioned. They love having their ego massaged. And they love to glory in the size of their following. And because of that, they are dangerous. They are ravenous or ferocious. Um, If you've seen the film Grey with Liam Neeson, then uh, you're under no illusions about wolves being kind of cuddly characters. Neeson uh, is in a plane crash in a wilderness area and is uh, horrendously pursued by packs of wolves. False teachers are deadly. This is serious business. Serious business. They are deadly in the first place because uh, the false teacher blurs the way of salvation. The false teacher blurs the way of salvation. Jesus has been uh, creating a very clear distinction between the, the broad and the narrow. And it is the, the, the peculiar uh, work of the false teacher to blur that distinction. So when Jeremiah, for example, denounces the false prophets of his day, he tells the people that these teachers were guilty of Quote, filling you with false hopes. They say continually to those who desire the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no evil shall become of you. Jeremiah 23, 16 and 17. And so it's significant that it's after Jesus describing the way to heaven as a narrow gate to a narrow road leading to life and contrasts it with a a wide gate going into a broad road leading to destruction, that Jesus warns against false teachers because false teachers will blur that distinction. Some of them will insist that the road to life is not that narrow after all. You can follow Jesus without having too many restrictions on your life. We see that in lots of ways, don't we? We see the, um, the way that the the disciplines of the Christian life are are set aside and we have gospel as therapy. You know, the gospel is your way uh, to having uh, your life made more comfortable, more profitable, more pleasurable. So there are those who blur the distinction by denying that the Christian life is a narrow road. You know, you can bring all of your baggage, all of your... your, uh, Uh, self-righteousness and all of your uh, wide and broad lifestyle along this road and nothing will come of you. And others deny that there is a road that leads to destruction at all. Okay, all roads lead to God. Uh, The narrow road of self-denial and the broad road of self-righteousness and self-indulgence. Obviously they're contradictory but some proclaim uh, that whatever way you choose 
all will be well in the end. They deny hell, they deny judgment, they deny the sharp distinction that the Lord Jesus makes uh, urging us to choose the narrow road. Therefore, this is serious business. False teaching uh, is destructive. Doctrine is important. It is vital for God's people to be discerning. Doctrine matters because ultimately uh, people's eternal destiny is at stake. It's not an abstract matter. It's not something that we can debate and be content that we disagree. People are being led to hell because of false teaching. So questions like whether the Trinity is taught or whether hell and judgment are denied or whether Jesus' divinity and humanity are both upheld, whether the cross is to be understood uh, in the historic sense of the Son of God taking the punishment in the place of sinners, all of these questions are of the utmost importance because they bear upon people's salvation, whether they were saved or not. You cannot be saved by uh, placing your trust in a Jesus who doesn't exist, who is the figment of a false teacher's rampant imagination. So how do we recognize the false teacher? They're disguised, and yet they're dangerous. So how do we recognize them? Jesus says, by their fruit you shall know them. They may not look any different, they may look very respectable, but they're known by what they produce. Now, there are three aspects, I think, that we could um, speak of in terms of what fruit implies. First, and obviously, is the teaching of these false prophets. False prophets produce bad teaching. Their teaching is false, dodgy, bad, destructive. Paul warns Timothy against false prophets. He says this about uh, the, their teaching and their doctrine. Speaking about what he has instructed, uh, Timothy says, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. <coughs> they have an unhealthy interest in controversies, quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. First Timothy 6, 2-5. False teachers push their own distinctives, their own distinctive brand of teaching, which actually contradicts the core teachings of the Bible. They are recognized when their teaching is investigated, when we probe to see what it is they are teaching. What is the, the basis behind some of the, the, the attractive uh, lessons and, and, uh, and teachings that they are known for. And as a result, they are controversialists. As, as Paul warns Timothy, they love in, uh, engaging in controversy, defending their left-field teachings. 
I have no doubt, for example, that Steve Clark today falls under the heading of false teacher. And Steve Clark of the Oasis Trust was once regarded as being within the evangelical fold. He is denied uh, penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that the cross was uh, Jesus bearing the punishment in our place for our sins. He denies that. He speaks of cosmic child abuse uh, uh, in terms of the cross. Horrendous. And it's no surprise that he's now a proponent of the church accepting the validity of same-sex relationships. And yet, uh, he is an attractive, uh, he is a well-spoken teacher. He's in sheep's clothing, but he has a ravenous heart. So they're recognized, first of all, by the fruit of their teaching, but also they're recognized by their lifestyles. Remember that they are hungry people, and therefore they love a following. Now, the work of the teacher should be to, uh, John the Baptist like to be continually pointing away from self and towards Jesus. The minister who is preaching at the front of a congregation has always to remember that it's Jesus' church with Jesus' promise that he will build his church. But the false teacher is intent on building a following and craves those uh, who follow the peculiarities of their own teaching. Paul warns the Ephesian elders that uh, such people will rise up even within the ranks of the church there at Ephesus. I know, he says, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Acts 20, uh, 29 and 30. The false prophet wants to lord over his own flock. False prophet thrives on adulation that is given uncritically to them. They love to attract a following. And another characteristic uh, is that they love money. Uh, Speaking in that same passage uh, about false teachers, Paul says of them that they think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, in the light of the, the significance of prosperity gospel teaching around the world, how can anyone proclaim that uh, giving is a means to financial gain when that is so clearly warned against in the scriptures? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Thirdly, Uh, Not only are they recognized by their teaching, uh, by their own lifestyle, they are also recognized by the impact that they have on their followers. What is their impact? When we look at people who follow these uh, high-profile but suspect teachers, what are their lives like? Are they Christ-like? Do these teachings produce uh, the an increase in the visibility of the fruit of the Spirit? Are they gentle? Are they peace-loving people? Are they generous to the poor? Do they show self-control? Are they loving and joyful? Or on the other hand, as is so often the case, are they restless, materialistic, compromised, exhausted by legalism, What fruit 
does the teacher see produced in their followers? Christians must be on their guard against false teachers. That's the first of Jesus' warnings. Secondly, Jesus warns us to be on guard against self-deception. We must ensure that we too are producing the kind of fruit that points to saving faith. We are to produce uh, good works that evidence the fact that we are the Lord Jesus Christ's. We are not to be uh, those who are dismissed in the end of the day as having had a veneer of spirituality, but are nevertheless evildoers. Again and again, notably in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling for obedience. He's calling for works that adorn the gospel. Now, we're not to misunderstand uh, that emphasis as teaching that we're made right with God by our good living. Jesus is not denying the fact that we are saved or made right or justified by faith in Christ alone. But that faith alone, which saves us, does not remain alone. Uh, It results in fruit, good fruit. The good tree bears good fruit. And therefore our lives show that we are Christ, that we are born again because of a Christian lifestyle. Jesus warns us against self-deception. He warns us it's possible to be very spiritual in your language. To be involved in what seems to be hyper-spiritual activity. And unless these things are accompanied by moral transformation, they count for nothing. The most elevated spiritual talk and the most impressive spiritual uh, activity, ministry, signs, wonders, counts for nothing unless there is moral transformation. The scene that Jesus portrays is the last judgment. And Jesus is warning us that many will be dismayed on the day of reckoning. People will come with confidence to him, expecting to be welcomed. And Jesus will uh, disappoint them. They will make an appeal to Jesus. Lord, Lord. They will speak in the most orthodox terms. Acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Addressing him reverently. Plenty of people will acknowledge Jesus in this way. Without being genuinely born again. Without being uh, truly saved. Some of the false prophets have their hyper-spiritual language. Some of those who follow them learn to speak the same. Great arbiters of whether the Spirit is present. Giving the impression by the language, the words they speak, that they are people of great spirituality. And in the end, it turns out that this was all packaging. Jesus warns that there will be plenty of people who have based their confidence on the fact that they did extraordinary things. Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment there will be people who come to him only to be turned away who will claim to have prophesied in his name, who will say that they have cast out demons in his name, who have performed many miracles in his name and they're going to say, Lord, Lord we did all of these things in your name and Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Go away, you evildoers. Now, notice Jesus does not enter into the question as to whether these gifts which were exercised, these prophesies, these casting out of demons, these many miracles, whether they were genuine or not genuine. The argument doesn't run, you are not saved, you are not mine because the, the prophesying and the demon, uh, demon exorcisms you did were inauthentic. That's not the argument. The argument is that whatever they were, they were not accompanied by transformed lives. Now people, plenty of people think and behave as though these are the things which are the uh, litmus test of genuine Christianity. They authenticate true spirituality. Jesus denies that. Whatever their character, they are not authentic uh, marks which denote whether somebody is a believer or not. I never knew you. Jesus isn't saying, of course, that he didn't know anything about him. He knows all about us. He's denying that he knew them in a saving way, in a relationship. Despite all of the religious talk, despite all the posturing, the powerful talk, the impressive results, they were never Christians. Imagine that. All of these things which bolstered their confidence at the last day to be stripped away. Wherever the signs and wonders originated, they didn't come from the one to whom they gave lip service. Therefore, how careful we have to be that we do not delude ourselves. How careful we have to be that we are not taken in by our own language, our own ministries, or what people say about us. How important it is to be right with God, to have authentic Christianity. This is ultimately what we have to be about as we conclude this morning. We need to respond to the challenge that Jesus sets before us. He has already urged us to enter the narrow gate. Uh, He calls on us to self-examination. To know whether or not we are in the way. To be ready to acknowledge that many of the things that others have looked upon and been impressed by may not be marks of genuine discipleship at all. And if we need to, to come in humility and repentance and to ask for forgiveness. To begin properly with God. We need to know that we are trusting in Christ's blood and righteousness for our acceptance before God and that we're living the life of a disciple. Not that we are perfect. Indeed, that we are confessing people, repenting people, repenting daily as we turn from sin and move towards Jesus and increasingly and visibly bear his likeness. Father, bless to us these searching words that your son taught in that remarkable sermon. Deliver us, we pray, from 
all of the things which delude us in the world, Lord, we are so readily taken in. We're impressed by numbers. We're impressed by smooth talkers. We're impressed by people who have the trappings of wealth, which seem to speak of the validity of what they stand for. Lord, we've seen how empty all of these can be, and only Jesus saves. And so grant, Lord, that we might rest alone in him, and know the release that comes from that, and the peace and the joy from knowing Jesus and living for him. In his name we pray. Amen.